With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Like any facet of history, fashion history certainly has its key players, the heavy hitters, the magic makers, the stars, if you will. Think Christian Dior, Charles Frederick Worth, Coco Chanel, Yves Saint Laurent. I mean, really, the list could go on and on. I know. But (laughs) there's also a seemingly endless bevy of talented and influential individuals who are not as well known. People whose successes and contributions to their epics are perhaps known to only a few, or worse, even, completely lost to fashion history, just sitting there waiting to be rediscovered. And it is the thrill, April, as you know, of every fashion historian to make these discoveries, to be the person who revives a legacy, a brand, or a person, to get to do that groundbreaking primary research into a subject that has yet to receive the scholarly attention it or they deserves. And such is the case with our subject today. Leah Gottlieb is a name perhaps not familiar to many, if not most, of our listeners, but she was a woman with extraordinary determination, drive, and talent. A woman who, after surviving the Holocaust in Hungary, moved with her husband Armin, two small children, and the little money they had to Israel, where they were determined to build a better life. And they did just that when they founded the Gotex Swimwear Company. A company that started when Leah started sewing swimsuits in the couple's living room. I love that. (laughs) I know. And it would eventually expand and expand exponentially to become this multi-million dollar, globally coveted and celebrated swimwear staple of the 1980s and the 1990s. And while the brand itself continues on today, it still survives, the incredible legacy and contributions of its founder, Leah Gottlieb, were largely overlooked until fashion historians Karen Ben Horan and Ayala Raz brought her name again to the fore. Two museum exhibitions later, and with other exciting projects in the works, coming soon, Leah is finally getting the recognition that she deserves. I think April and I are both excited to welcome fashion historian and our friend Karen Ben Horan to dress today. Welcome, Karen. Welcome. Thank you for being here, Karen. I'm very excited. I am too. Thank you for having me. Karen and I were actually uh, dress listeners in graduate school together at, you've heard this name before, the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. Um, Karen, am I right that you wrote your graduate thesis on Leah Gottlieb? Yes, that's that's correct. And I'm going to guess that many of our listeners are not familiar with Leah, because, um, but maybe more, more of them have heard of her luxury swimmer brand, Gotex. So Leah and her husband, Armin, founded the Gotex company in 1956 in Israel, but they were not from there. So in fact, they immigrated from Hungary in 1949. Can you tell us about her early life in Hungary? Yeah, so that's um, that's a really good question. And, and one of the challenges um, in doing this research, other than the fact that when I was doing the bulk of the research, I was uh, in New York, so it was very hard for me to access a lot of archives. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to that, because she was a Holocaust survivor, um, there wasn't any family archive really to go back to. They Mm -hmm. left Hungary after the war. And so they left everything behind. 
in addition to that, she never really wanted to discuss anything because um, she didn't want to think back on those really difficult years. So we kind of had to patch together a lot of, um, from a lot of different sources, Mm -hmm. um, and not everything was reliable, or we couldn't confirm a lot of the things. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of what we do know came from her. Um, So uh, we know she was born in uh, 1918. And we know that she her early life was really troubled, her parents didn't really get along, her mom was probably a little unstable her dad was a drinker there was a lot of problems in the home and then when she was pretty young she was giving away and she was raised by her aunt oh wow in 2002 she did an interview for the Yad Vashem oral uh, history project Mm -hmm. Um, it's organization that documents Holocaust survivors and their experiences and we at the time couldn't locate the actual recording but we had a summary of it and it's only very recently that we actually were able to read the transcript and see it was recorded Mm -hmm. um so on video so we actually have the recording but she was very very emotional and a lot of what she tells her is very fragmented and Mm -hmm. kind of hard to piece together but we know that she was a very bright student mm-hmm. and after high school she either started university and had to quit or couldn't even get into university we're not sure uh, because of new laws that prohibited jewish people to attend universities mm-hmm. higher education we know that in the late uh, 1930s She had a throat surgery in Budapest, and when she was recovering, her friend, who was married to Armin's brother, uh, took her to have an ice cream, and um, she met Armin in that ice cream store. He really courted her, um, he really liked her, (laughs) and she was a little reluctant at the beginning, but in 1940, they married. And um, they had their first daughter in 1941, a year later. And very shortly after, he was taken away to work in a labor camp. Um, We also know that between the time that they met and the time Mm -hmm. that he was taken away, they went into business with his brother who had a raincoat factory. And that's where she starts having this experience Mm -hmm. working in garment manufacturing. She's not designing yet. He's Mm -hmm. doing most of the business and most of everything. And she's more of an assistant. And then during the war, he was in labor camp um, and she was moving around at some point. Uh, And that's where things get a little fuzzy and we're not sure, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of like when at some point she was able to get him out and they were traveling together, mm-hmm. hiding. Um, at some point they had another daughter, Judith. And eventually after the war, they are able to leave the country and sort of like travel for a few years mm-hmm. through uh, the Balkan countries, uh, the Czech Republic, Balkan countries. And then eventually they come to Israel because they could not get a visa to go to the U.S. where they had family. 
Yeah, so they arrive in Israel in 1949, and they have their two small daughters, and they only had enough money to buy a small house and none to restart the raincoat business. So I think you write that Leah sold her wedding ring for collateral, and it still was not enough money to buy the fabric that they needed. But she proves herself to be very enterprising. Can you tell us about the opportunity she found in, of all places, her daughter's organza bibs? I love this story. Yes, it's a really beautiful story. Mm -hmm. Um, But before I tell you the story, I have to tell you that uh, one of the things that we, my partner and I, Ayalara, as my professor, who, you know, we've done a lot of research together. Mm -hmm. um, And one of the things that we've found over the years is that there is a lot of fantasy infused into the stories that she's Mm -hmm. telling. And I think it's what enabled her to survive. And we can see that really later on in her work, how Mm -hmm. she tries to beautify everything, really. And so there are stories that we were not able to really confirm. Mm -hmm. Um, So she tells that story that she she had to sell her or kind of mortgage her ring. And uh, the bib story has a, a few different versions, uh, but I actually, that story specifically, I believe, because there is a picture of her daughters wearing those bibs. So the story <laughs> goes that they were trying to raise money to restart the raincoat factory. And what she done, she took, they had those beautiful organza bibs that she took apart to really study how they were made. And with a little bit of money that they had, they bought the fabric, they borrowed a sewing machine, and she made them. And Armin then went to a store in Tel Aviv Business Center, um, and he was able to sell them in a children's wear store. And they were a huge success. He sold everything, and they made a little bit more money, mm-hmm. sold a few more, and then eventually were able to bring in enough money and buy more sewing machines and restart the Ringwood factory from their apartment. Um, they moved to a different area in a bigger apartment, and um, that's how they kind of started the raincoat factory. But one of the problems is that in addition to war that was going on, Aaliyah says in an interview in 1972 when she kind of you know goes back and kind of remembers everything that happened and she said that when they were making raincoats they used to look at the sky and pray for rain and that's when they decided to quit and make swimsuits yeah because there was no rain in israel at this point right it never rained (laughs) very rarely (laughs) which actually proves quite well for them because that leads them to founding Gotex in 1956, right? Correct. And Gotex is a combination of their last name, Gottlieb, and textile. That's true. That's true. And so Leah had no creative role in the Rainco company necessarily, but that all changed with the swimwear company because now she's designing and she's making the swimwear, right? She starts out sewing the, the swimwear and she doesn't have any prior experience or training in design or swimsuit making. Can you tell us about these early designs that are being produced by Gotex in the 1950s? Yeah, so she has some sewing skills okay. and she has some construction skills, but very basic. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, from the very beginning, 
reigned supreme over this whole operation. And what's interesting is that they had the insight from very early on to understand mm-hmm. that Israel is a very small market. So their first collection was already exported to Malta. Mm. Um, so they're looking to export and expand their market from mm-hmm. very early on. In terms of style, the swimsuits were always really made in really high quality fabrics, high quality mm-hmm. construction, but they're not special. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. Um, they're very fashionable. She follows the trends in major fashion cities, uh, but they're not unique. Um, if you look at the styling from the 1950s and the mm-hmm. early 1960s, she follows the trend. So, you know, early 1960s, it's all very pastel-y, kind of pistachio colors. Later on, she brings a lot of black and white uh, geometric patterns. You see a lot of sort of like cutoffs in, in different parts of the body. Mm-hmm. And um, it, so it's it's very fashionable, but we're not seeing yet this unique kind of design kind of fingerprint that we'll Mm -hmm. see later. Yeah. So she's designing these very fashionable swimsuits and the company becomes incredibly successful. And I might be getting a little ahead of myself, but by the early 70s, so 20 years after starting their business, Gotex has blossomed into a beachwear empire. It's now a household name that's sold around the world. It's a staple in the leading fashion magazines. So Leah really proves herself to have quite the eye for design, and she traveled extensively to stay on top of the European trends, as you mentioned, but also to keep the design inspiration fresh and new. And I think this is when you say she really starts to come into her own. And I read that she sent assistance to war zones in Yugoslavia, quote, all in the name of inspiration and newness. Is that another one of these fantasy stories surrounding her? That's actually true. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) That's actually true. Um, so it's it's very interesting that if you think about it, in the 1970s, she's already almost two decades into mm-hmm. having the company designing extensively. And one of the things that I have to say up front is that she is really creating a niche that didn't exist before her. There was no really luxury swimmer. There was no lifestyle brand that centered around mm-hmm. swimwear. Um, swimwear, until she came into the scene, were fashionable, but they were functional. Mm-hmm. When she comes in, and in the 1970s, like you said, she really comes into herself, and I'll explain a little bit about how that happens. She creates this something that has never been seen before Mm -hmm. um, anywhere else in the world. And people start to imitate her business later on. And she even has advances from other designers Mm -hmm. like Versace and Yves Saint Laurent, who wanted her to design under their labels. um, And she refused because she was very attached and proud of her own name. Um, She should be. (laughs) Yeah. And so what happened in the 1970s, and I I call it like the perfect storm because Mm -hmm. it was a combination of a few things. So first of all, if you think about her as a very up-to-date designer, during the 1970s, sort of like late 60s and early 70s, a lot of other designers are looking to non-Western cultures for inspiration. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a lot of 
prince coming in and a very bold use of color and themes from inspired by nature. And she is following that. So at the beginning of the 70s, you see designs or have those uh, themes, but they're Mm -hmm. still not that super unique like we would see later. They're still following what almost everyone else is doing. So if you think about Gucci during that time period, it's very Mm -hmm. much that. But by that time, Gothics, like you said, is very successful. Mm -hmm. So she has a lot of resources that were not available to her before in terms of the kind of prints that she can produce, the kind of materials that she can source. She already had her two daughters working with her. So Judith, the younger one, is in Tel Aviv working by her side as her, you know, um, right hand Mm -hmm. in design. And Miriam, in the kind of first part of the 1960s, moves to New York where she starts Gotex USA. And she has, she's very business savvy. She understands the market. She is relentless in pursuing uh, department stores who are trying to, who are starting to carry gothics. And mm-hmm. so she has her daughters kind of giving her, supporting her design, but also bringing in some like more youthful kind of atmosphere into the mm-hmm. company. And because you're successful financially, she can start to experiment with small groups that are more fashion forward. And if they fail and they don't succeed one year, it's she can absorb mm-hmm. um, the loss and she can then push it again next year. And that's what happens at the beginning. So during that time period, we see her starting to, in terms of the design aesthetic, mm-hmm. develop something that's completely new. And that is really very much based on models that she's seeing in couture mm-hmm. and um, high-end ready-to-wear. So inspiration from art, that's something that no other swimwear designer did before her. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, too, because that I really want to hear more about how art um, and her religion and her heritage all inspired her incredibly unique designs. But another fantastic thing about Leah and why she, I think this company was so successful and you talk about this was how involved she was in every step of the design process. So this really ensured the integrity of her product from the beginning to the end. And I'd like you to take us through her process for a typical collection, if you could. I know she was intimately involved with the entire creative process. So from inspiration to textile design to construction, I feel like today these jobs are kind of farmed out to different people, but she was doing all of them. Yeah, so I think one of the things that made her gothic so unique and so successful but at the end also contributed to their demise was exactly that process um and so she would start with inspiration and inspiration could come from anywhere and she herself traveled a lot Mm -hmm. um, and she had assistants traveling for her as well and you mentioned before Yugoslavia <laughs> uh, sending assistance to Yugoslavia when there's a war raging or sending them to South Africa with like m- money in their socks, literally, mm-hmm. and oh, wow. without really any directions of what they should bring when they come back. <laughs> um, 
so um, she would travel, she would go to museums, she would go to shows, music, mm -hmm. dance. She even has inspiration coming from a gift wrap that she bought in a store in Paris and she likes the, the wrapping paper and she goes to her printer and she said, do something similar. So it starts with a lot, a lot of inspiration coming from culture, essentially. Mm -hmm. And she buys catalogs of, you know, museum exhibitions. Um, she buys art books. She also goes and she does, she buys garments from other designers. And um, it could be a button that she likes. It could be a print. It could be an embroidery, small details. She also mm -hmm. goes to flea markets where she buys old garments uh, that she finds. So inspiration could really come from anywhere, mm -hmm. um, from street signs, from album covers, really from anywhere. So it's a very organic experience for her then. Very much. And then she brings all that back. Oftentimes, she would travel with her daughters and an assistant to mm -hmm. Milan, where they had an apartment. And they would sit, would sit in that apartment and they would have textile designers coming to meet them. And she would start working with them on her vision, what she wants to develop. And each Gothic's collection was, mm -hmm. uh, they did one collection every year, resort collection. But it was made up of a lot of smaller groups, each centering on one theme. Mm -hmm. of inspiration and within that group maybe they had seven to ten different styles um, and that included cover-ups a bikini a, a one-piece etc and so some collections were as big as 60 groups wow so you can imagine how much inspiration and how many materials and and different development and kind of of different materials you really mm -hmm. needed to create 400 to 600 pieces every year. Wow. Um, so then she would start working with those textile designers and she only worked directly with manufacturers. She didn't use agents. Um, so she had personal relationships with fabric manufacturers mm -hmm. in Italy and printers. And they would do this super intricate designs for her. She would then travel back to Israel and they would bring the fabric samples to her in Israel, where her pattern makers will start playing with those textile samples mm -hmm. and fitting them into different styles. For different body types and, and shapes. Body types, and, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And um, that was a very long process and back and forth, going back to Milan, bringing the fabric, redeveloping them, correcting mm -hmm. them, bringing them back to Israel um, and so forth until a group was developed around this inspiration. And that work process enabled her to cater to different markets so she had agents in over a uh, hundred different countries buying her collections and they all had different needs by developing so many different uh, shapes, cover-ups, garments, really. She could cater to the demands of different markets, mm -hmm. but still keep her vision, how she thought the collection as a whole should look like. 
I know. I think I read somewhere that Saks always got to see her collection first or they were one of her biggest customers. That's true. It's, it's, it's actually pretty amazing when you think about it today, but Saks would send about 10 different buyers to Tel Aviv every year to see the collection. Because she did runway shows, right? Right. So even before the runway shows, she would show the collection to the buyers and she would stage a fashion show in their showroom in Tel Aviv. And Saks really were the first to see the collection. And they would then pick the styles that they liked. And many times that really directed which collection will then be shown to other buyers that come after them. So textile design was uh, and development was really central to the company. And you talk about how this textile was really the starting point for her design. And she proved herself to be a successful designer, but she was not only a successful designer, she was quite innovative. And her daughter said that her mother's background in chemistry, which I don't think we talked about earlier, but she did have a background in biochemistry, was behind many of the advances in her swimwear textiles. So can you talk about the innovations that she brought to swimwear? Several people that I interviewed uh, for my paper um, talked about how knowledgeable she was in textile development and that oftentimes she would be the one giving the manufacturers instructions on how to achieve different effects that she was after. So, for example, she was the first one to uh, develop the wet look lycra or the leather-like lycra that has sort of like this crackled kind of look to it. She also was very advanced in her printing on stretch fabrics. And she, uh, many of her designs incorporated over 24 different colors in silk printing. Wow. And just to compare, competitors at the same time did maybe the most eight colors. So we get those prints that are extremely vibrant, extremely elaborate and intricate and layered. Um, they're almost like works of art. And in addition, she also did a lot of research in mark untapped markets really for unique textiles like beaded textiles or beading techniques on textile mm -hmm. that she found in Spain or in Japan, uh, very delicate laces that she would apply hardware, uh, unique hardware that was applied to belts and, and garments that were part of the collection as well. Yeah, so we're, we're kind of discussing it here, but during Gotex's heyday in the 80s and 90s, this brand was not just a world renowned brand, but it was a coveted luxury swimwear brand. And it was worn by celebrities from Princess Diana to Brooke Shields. And in fact, Gotex was considered the haute couture of swimwear. So you've talked a little bit about this old luxury style that set Gotex apart, um, but also and how she adapted many of the industry, same industry standards on par with high-end European fashion houses. But can you talk a little bit more about that? What drove her to bring haute couture techniques into the swimwear industry? I think she always saw herself as a high-end designer. Mm -hmm. um, she never thought of herself as just a manufacturer of swimwear. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and she, in many ways, not just the design process, but even the structure of the company and some of the practices within the company are really based on those models. In terms of construction, the garments, the swimwear had underpinnings. Um, if you look inside, it's it's very much structured. So you might not see it on the outside, but it's extremely well made. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a lot of attention on details and how things work together. Mm-hmm. So she's creating those groups within each collection that compose an entire wardrobe, really. So you can come and, and have different shapes of um, swimwear in sort of like similar prints that work together and you can have the cover up to go on top of it. So she's really thinking uh, about this as a lifestyle brand. And that's how she's approaching her design, her marketing, her branding, um, and everything is thought through. So nothing is an afterthought. The catalogs Mm -hmm. are not an afterthought. Everything she thinks about from the very beginning. And even in staging runway shows Mm -hmm. that were reported on in the New York Times. So this is a big event in New York happening every year. You know, front row is Donna Karen and other designers and um, reporters. And, you know, they're reporting on her fashion shows in the same way that they're reporting on couture from Paris the week before or the month before. And and it's it's very conscious. And she herself is wearing couture. She's wearing Dior. She's wearing Chanel. She's traveling all over the world. She travels to Europe. She lives the high life. So she really develops this as an old luxe brand. And she did this with these incredibly high standards, craftsmanship, creative design aesthetic, and this adoption of these other high fashion industry staples. So you've talked about the fashion show, but she also had this company catalog. And this was not just a catalog. This was not um, what we might think of as a mail order catalog. This was a production. This was a magazine essentially that was produced and using the period's leading fashion photographers and models. Can you talk about how this came about? Yeah, so um, from... Around the sort of I think 19 late 1970s or early 80s, she starts producing those oversized, almost coffee table book like catalogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they travel to exotic places to shoot them. Um, she's using, you know, the industry's best photographers like. Uh, Patrick Dermorchelier and Norman Perkinson, and she's using um, the the leading Israeli photographer, Ben Lam, who does a lot of the catalogs for her. And you have uh, models like Naomi Campbell and Tyra Banks later and Claudia Schiffer and all of those famous models and even models that were not known but then became known later, like Stephanie Steamer, you can see in her catalogs um, as well. And and one of the interesting things is how those catalogs are con- conceived. So one of the things that people working with her told me is that she already knew how the catalog would look like when she started working from her inspiration. She already had that in her head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then her daughter, Judith, and Ben Lam would work with this company uh, named Tarnovsky in Tel Aviv. 
to produce those catalogs. So they would think of where to shoot them, how to shoot, who to use. And at the same time, they're also developing their runway show and they have a director who, who comes from London every year and he collects pieces of textiles that are used in the collection and he himself is creating accessories and um, they're also creating samples specifically for the runway shows and those Mm -hmm. are also used partly in the catalogs so it's really elaborate and they're kind of doing them at the same time and that also is very unique in the swimwear kind of world mm-hmm. um, to go that length to put so many invest so many resources in making those catalogs um, that are really for show because in addition they have sort of like marketing catalogs that have like model numbers and, and are much more functional for their mm-hmm. agents and that really goes to show how aware she was of branding and how she understood that branding was important to place her as a luxury brand, a coveted brand. And they also dressed the entire cast of The Love Boat um, for more than a decade. Oh, really? Yes. Learned something new every day. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's one model in particular that I want you to talk about, and because she appeared in the majority of these of these catalogs, and her name was Tammy Ben Ami. Can you talk about this relationship that she had with this company? Um, because it's actually pretty special, and she's quite important to the face of fashion. I would say she started as a fit model. Really, she was very tall. She had very long legs, wide shoulders, very strong features. um, And she had a slightly darker skin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the time, if you look at the catalogs and you look at the imagery that Gatex is producing, they hardly use models that are black or have darker skin. And they only use them in a very kind of ethnic context. Mm -hmm. So really evoking if you think about sort of like Gauguin kind of aesthetic that's what she's looking uh, for when she uses black models Mm -hmm. Um, she mostly uses blonde models preferably Hungarian if they could be and they don't even consider Tommy as a face that could kind of be associated with them they're not even using her for the for shoots or for Mm -hmm. fashion shows Then in the early 70s, this journalist, fashion journalist in Israel named Nurit Batyar uses her for an editorial in this kind of women's magazine. And she uses her and she almost overnight becomes this star. And Gotterks are like, oh, we have her. She's our house model. We should use her more. <laughs> and they, they they start using her for um, their catalogs. And mm-hmm. I believe the first time they used her was in 1972 or 73, early in the 70s. And she proves to be a natural in front of the camera. And Ben Lam then starts shooting her for almost every catalog since then. And he has this story of how it was so 
easy to shoot her because it was only a few clicks and you you get this the way she moved was inspirational to him um and she was so easy to work with and in terms of leah they become this pair and she really influences she becomes her muse on and think about all those bathing suits that are modeled that are kind of molded on her body so they really influence how they look and because she had a dark skin leah really loved how color looked on her skin so she starts using more color for the runway shows she selects models that look good against or near her Um, and she even sends them to tanning salons if their skin is not Tommy's tone. So um, she really influences how Gothic is starting to look. And there's also a beautiful pareo that was included in the exhibition in New York that shows this sort of like a silhouette of a woman on, on the beach. And, and, it, and it's based on an image of Tommy. So her influence is everywhere from about that point in time on until the 1990s, really, when she later passes away um, uh, young from cancer. But Tammy's success is important for another reason, correct? And that has to do with her Sephardic Jewish heritage. So she's really bringing this heritage, this cultural identity, into the Israeli fashion mainstream for the first time. Yes, and Cassidy, I think it's before we dive into that, it, it really is worth explaining what even Sephardic means. So that term is used to describe Jewish people who came to Israel from Spain, from North Africa, or from other Eastern countries like Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Turkey, just to name a few. And the more commonly used term today is actually Mizrahim, which literally means Eastern. In contrast, Ashkenazi Jews originate from Europe or Eastern Europe. And to understand the conflict between Ashkenazi and Sephardic, you really need to kind of track back to the early 20th century. The Zionist movement, which eventually led to the establishing of Israel as a state, was founded by Ashkenazi communities in Europe. A big part of their ideology around the resettling of uh, Jewish people in the region that is now called Israel was rationalized as reculturation, or rather as contrasting the local Arab culture that existed there pre-1948. So when Jewish people started to immigrate from Eastern Arab countries, they too were then perceived by the now primarily Ashkenazi establishment as being uncultured. Despite, of course, the fact that they did come from rich cultures that had long and deep and very complex histories. So for a brand like Gotex, uh, that was considered the crown jewel of the Israeli industry um, that is run by this elite Ashkenazi family, it was quite radical to place a visibly Eastern, sporadic, Middle Eastern model as their face. And it's also evidence of how much 
Leah was on the pulse because during that time period, um, especially in popular music, you start to see uh, sporadic artists gradually becoming more accepted into the mainstream. But Gottlieb was definitely, as always, ahead in how she placed Tammy front and center in the branding of gothics. Um, and it's also worth uh, mentioning that during that heyday, especially in the 1980s, where Tommy was like this huge celebrity in Israel, she also dated an African-American basketball player. And a biracial couple in Israel during that time period was a very unusual thing. So she really is breaking a lot of boundaries. and. Maybe the one image that's most associated between her, um, Tammy, Leah, and Ben Lam, the photographer, is what is known as the snake picture, which was really a sensational photograph. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. And it shows Tammy in like this cat suit of uh, like snake skin cat suit. Um, and it's very unapologetic. It's very powerful. It's very sexual. Mm -hmm. And if you're Israeli, you know right away that you recognize that um, Middle Eastern look. And that was something very groundbreaking during that time period in Israel. You mentioned that Leah is really on the pulse during this period. And it's, it's really the time when she starts to come into her own as a designer. So in the 50s and 60s, she was very much in line with fashion, which means she was following the trends of fashion, but she wasn't really setting them. But she really starts to hit her stride, and she emerges with her own unique design language that starts to set her apart. And this is in the 80s when she starts to use Tammy and into the 90s. This is the company's heyday, a period when Leah really starts to prove herself as not only a designer, but as an innovator and an artist. And I love that she brings all of these influences into her designs from around the world and throughout history. I'm hoping, Karen, that you can speak a little bit more to the influence of art in her work, but also the role that Leah's own Jewish heritage played in her designs. Yeah, so she was very cultured. And like I said, she traveled, she saw a lot of exhibitions, um, and she was very influenced by the art of other people and mm -hmm. but the way she adapted that art into her world was also artistic in a way um, one of the interesting things that I found in my research is that she's probably not consciously but she's doing this very interesting thing where she would kind of translate a work of art. So let's say she takes a painting by Gauguin mm -hmm. that she sees in, in a catalog or in a show, and she would take that to one of her artists, and she would then instruct them on how to adapt that into a print. And oftentimes she makes changes, and she takes complete liberty in making changes. So if in a Gauguin painting, there's a girl with a ribbon in her hair, uh, Leah Gottlieb will then turn it into a flower and would make it a big flower because she loves flowers and they're always somewhere in her design. Mm -hmm. um, but she keeps certain elements of the original work 
that are essential to the work. So in Gauguin's um, example, uh, we have this thing where that you can see in a lot of his later work where there's sort of like bends of color across the painting and she keeps that structure but she uses it in a way that fits the shape of the body or the shape of the body that she's looking uh, to create so uh, we have one tunic where she uses those bends of color to to create sort of like an empire waist by placing color blocks essentially and layering in the elements of the print on top of it. And then she could take one element from the original painting. If it's a little flower in the girl's skirt, she would take that and she would really uh, sort of like blow it up and add more of it and use it as a pattern on the sleeve. Mm-hmm. And then she would take another element and sort of like enlarge again or kind of multiply and put it on a different part. And then when she goes and breaks it into the different um, body shapes and bathing suit styles, she would then take those elements and use them on different bathing suits, creating essentially those like subgroups. Mm-hmm. She also um, combines work of artists, different artists. So there is a beautiful collection from 1992 that combines the work of Chagall, Marc Chagall, and uh, Victor Vassarelli, which um, is known for his op art. And you would think, how are those two related? But the way she does it is very interesting because Marc Chagall created several paintings, Mm -hmm. um, either on plaid tablecloth, or he would create those geometric sort of like compositions and layer his painting on top of it. And when you look at his childhood and her childhood, they're very similar in terms of uh, the, the Jewish tradition that they're sort of like brought up in. And a lot of the subject matter in his in his paintings are very much related to this tradition, Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. um, the bride, the flowers on the Shabbat dinner. All of that is is very much part of her personal life, which I think is what really drew her to his art. But because she loves all of this like black and white geometric aesthetic, she combines them. So she creates this something that's uniquely her. One of the things that I really grappled with in my research is that she's, um, when she borrows from different cultures and different artists, there really there is no cultural sensitivity. So today we would call it cultural appropriation. Yes, we would. <laughs> 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 Not a new topic on dressed, I must say. <laughs> yeah, and and at the time that this course really didn't exist, mm-hmm. um, and you could see it, it's it's sometimes embarrassing even to look at some of the catalogs where um, you know to represent uh, Native Americans, she has feathers in the hair, and you know all of those like things that today we would really cringe looking at, but mm-hmm. that's really very much part of how she designs. Um, so, and it's very much of her time, of that time, uh, and what a lot of other designers did at the same time as well. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is um, there's always 
contradictions with, with Leah Gottlieb. Um, so if you look at how she's approaching Tami Ben-Ami, which was a, um, you know, a sporadic Jew with darker skin, um, um, communities that at that time were marginalized in Israel, and she puts her front and center, really. Mm-hmm. She makes her the face of gothics. And a lot of times you would see her kind of dressing Tami in sort of like a way that kind of bridges between East and West in mm-hmm. a very interesting way. So there's um, an in- interesting photograph of Tami with this wearing this thing on her hair that's made of feathers and is white feathers and is inspired by the Swan Lake Ballet. So really kind of fusing Eastern culture with Western culture. And I think the fact that during this time, she's putting, during the kind of heyday of of, uh, gothics in the 1980s, where Tommy and gothics are synonymous with one another. And she really represents them all over the world. And in that sense, Leah is really helping shift the cultural powers in Israel. Mm -hmm. And she's putting someone who's previously been marginalized as her face of her company, Mm -hmm. which in Israel is was considered to be the crown jewel of Israeli industry and really representing Israel uh, abroad. And so that's a very kind of interesting power. So is this controversial at all? Or when you say marginalized, or was it just moving forward and moving in, in a new direction? It is moving forward in a new direction, but there was a lot of discussion during that time period where you have um, what we call in Israel Eastern music kind of coming into the mainstream. And also when she did in um, also in 92, the Jerusalem of Gold collection, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, one of the most beautiful collections she has done. And she takes that collection to this annual trade show in in Germany where she show she does a runway show showing this collection in Germany and she has uh, this singer Ofrahaza who was very pop became very popular during that time period with her more eastern music and she sings um, the song Jerusalem of Gold in Germany and you know the cry- everyone's crying and um, for Leah going back you know, hearing mm-hmm. the German language, but being able to kind of have this, to own this moment mm-hmm. and to be, to to really come on top and be this like really successful woman showing this very visually Jewish collection with the Hamsa and all those like Jewish, you know, elements in it was a really, really moving a moment for her and and there's a letter that she wrote uh, that exists in the archive that she wrote uh, back to the people in the factory telling them recounting everything that happened that night and, and people reading that letter were literally in tears over that very very moving moment wow 
I just love learning about her because I think it's really easy for us, especially today in a you know fashion market that's just inundated with things we've all seen before. You know, it's really easy to oversimplify swimwear and to divorce it from high fashion, but also from art, from culture, from history, from religion. And Leah actually did the exact opposite of that. I mean, she was constantly inspired by these various factors and she made important statements, not just about art and history, but also her heritage and, um, you know, the world around her. And I think that's incredible um, and inspiring in many ways. Yeah. Israel was also, you know, a big part of her inspiration, mm-hmm. although, and that's also part of the contradiction, she always was a little distant from the Israeli culture. She never really learned the language. Um, she lived in this fancy tower in the center of Tel Aviv, constantly traveling, hardly traveling in Israel. She was never really assimilated in the culture. But at the same time, you know, she was really inspired by this almost a fantasy of what Israel is mm-hmm. um, and what the Middle East is. And people who were buying gothics was, were really buying works of art. Leah's works of art and many people that I've interviewed and worked for her and bought her swimwear said that it was like wearing art. And and a lot of those garments you really couldn't really go into the water with. They were too fragile. That was one of my questions. Can you swim in these beaded garments? Uh, not in the, well, they were parts of the collection that were more athletic <laughs> in a way, but the very intricate and the very kind of fancy um, garments. You you didn't want to go into the water with them. Karen, thank you so much for being here today. We've had a wonderful conversation. Um, I want to talk about, because the Gotex brand still exists today, right? But the family is not connected to it any longer? Not anymore. No, they sold the company in, the, in 1999. And so, right, it was acquired in 97 and then Leah left after a year. Is that right? A couple of years, yes. But something I loved reading was that once her non-compete agreement expired, at the age of 85, she founded a new swimwear design company under her own name. She called it Leah. She she couldn't really use Gotex anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, she called it Leah, and she started this new line that was sold to department stores in Europe. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> After a few years, she couldn't really design anymore, but they had a designer, but they still involved her in the process. Um, Yeah. So Leah passed away at the age of 94 on November 17th, 2012. But Karen, I love that you actually got to know her. You got to know her family, um, this family that was the heart of this empire that existed for decades. And it just makes your research that much more rounded and special that they've shared with you these intimate images and insights of their mother. And it brings this entirely new dimension to your research that as fashion historians, we don't often get to have that experience. You write in your thesis at the end, you said that although Gotex is a household name, very little is known about the people who founded and built the company and no comprehensive academic research is available. Well, you've obviously changed that. You've effectively brought Gottlieb and her family's legacy to the fore. And you've now done two exhibitions on her and written your thesis. But what do you have in the works currently? That's pretty exciting. Yes. So Ayala and I are working on a documentary film that really brings to light those people uh, that were always kind of 
you know, hidden behind behind those swimsuits um, mm-hmm. and the fabrics and the pareos. Um, and we got funding from the Israeli public broadcasting channel. And we're cur- currently editing in Israel. And it's going to air later this year. Stay tuned. That's very exciting. Yes. And dress listeners, we will keep everybody apprised of the the development. So thank you so much for sharing her story with us today, Karen, and for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Really. I am so glad that Leah, a woman who brought art, innovation, and luxury to swimwear, is finally getting the recognition that she deserves. And in a documentary, no less, it is so cool to see these fashion history stories making it to the screen. And at the hands of actual fashion historians. Very important (laughs) distinction. (laughs) I'm really excited to see what they produce. And we are definitely in need of some quality, well-researched fashion documentaries. And I happen to know that there's a few more in the works. Yeah, and we are definitely going to be talking about those later. So stay tuned, everybody. So with that, we conclude today's episode of Dressed. As always, thank you for listening. And remember... You, too, are the star of your own story next time you get dressed. Please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast for images that accompany each episode. This is also our Twitter handle. On Facebook, we are at dressed podcast without the underscore. You can write to us at dressed howstuffworks.com. And please also be sure to check out additional readings if you are so inclined for each show on our website at www.dressedpodcast.com. Thank you to our producers as always, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works who helps make dress possible each week. Catch you soon.